Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording here in Amiskwichi, Wiskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, here in Treaty 6 territory. And, I don't know if you've heard this, but Greta Thunberg is coming. It seemed like only a minute ago she was shaming world leaders for their inaction on climate change at the UN. It seemed like only a minute ago she was shaming world leaders for their inaction on climate change at the UN. And it was just a few weeks ago here in Canada that just under 700,000 people were in the streets, with millions more around the world demanding climate action. And while Greta offers up a compelling media narrative, she's not doing this all by herself. There are thousands and thousands of other Gretas out there, young people who are in their communities who are doing the work doing the organizing and planning actions and building signs and getting out in the streets and, and harassing political uh, operatives and politicians. And that's what this episode is about. We are talking to a couple of real live youth climate organizers. And so today I'm very grateful to have two young climate activists in studio. And they were even involved in organizing the climate strike here in Edmonton, the one that had 4,000 people in the streets, the most people I've seen in the streets my entire time here in Edmonton in the past 10 years. First up, we have Juan Vargas, an undergraduate student here at the University of Alberta. He is a member of Climate Justice Edmonton. Juan, welcome. Hi, uh, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. And we also have Alyssa Tones. Uh, Alyssa just graduated from high school here in Edmonton, and she's a member of Edmonton Youth for Climate. Hi, it's nice to be on here. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks so much for coming on. So I know how we said it was all about how Greta can't do it by herself. But the news of her, her coming to Alberta has kind of like detonated. And um, I was just curious, like, how are you feeling about Greta coming to Alberta? Well, it was kind of sudden to just see it like out of the blue. But I always kind of hoped, you know, fingers crossed. So I'm looking forward to it and I'm very excited. I'm also super excited. It, it actually made me think a little bit about, um, you know, climate activists that we've had in like like so-called uh, famous climate activists that we had in, in the province uh, over the last few years. Like I know Jane Fonda was here uh, last year and there was some controversy around that and her flying over the oil sands. Um, but I, I'm incredibly excited. I think it's going to be, uh, you know, really great to see her. And I think it's going to be hilarious to see grown men uh, in their pickup trucks uh, waving their truck nuts in the air <laughs> and like anger and fear of a 16-year-old girl who is like very right about what she's talking about. Yeah, I, I was at my parents' house for Thanksgiving. I was just looking at my, my child's asleep. I'm looking at my phone, and it's, like, late on a Saturday night or something. And it's like, holy shit, Greta's just, like, casually dropped that she's coming to Alberta. And, like, the best part of it is the, like, giant flop sweat that she immediately induced in Alberta's, like, media and political class. Um, you know, we saw panicked reactions from someone like the likes of Leisha Corbella, the former UCP member and uh, and post-media columnist, her reaction to this news was that, who is funding her travel? Why is she involving herself in a Canadian election? Is this part of the quote-unquote tar sands campaign? I assume her heart rate was around 120, 130 when she sent that tweet out. I mean... She was in a frenzy. Yeah, like like the this idea, uh, this, this angry and correct like 16-year-old Swedish girl is just like kryptonite to so many people out there and and it is forcing alberta's well it's not it's not hasn't forced yet but it will shortly force alberta's kind of political and media class to kind of confront the like the realities of what has to be done on climate change here because we we are kind of just wandering around in a fog here like like you know jason kenny won an overwhelming mandate but like when you look around 
at what has to be done. And when you do the reading and we, when you listen to what Greta has to say, it's like the, the bromides around uh, jobs or the bromides around um, uh, like, like Saudi Arabia or Russia or ethical oil or whatever, like who gives a shit? I think it's very much like when they were tweeting about, uh, oh yeah, is she going to be coming to like Saudi Arabia anytime soon? Is she going to be going to Russia where it's like a lot more strict and a lot, a very much more like unwelcoming to like climate activists i think it kind of just shows that it's a veiled threat like they're trying to instill fear in the fact that god is coming here but as you can see from like the frenzy that they've picked up they're the ones who are scared right now and they're trying to i guess kind of convince us that we should be scared of them still that they still have like power especially uh when they're part of the government like the overwhelming majority of the government I remember I read uh, Minister Sonia Savage's message uh, that was basically like, oh, like we're going to, you know, welcome you uh, in the most Canadian way possible. We're going to be really nice to you, uh, but also just invokes a bunch of whataboutism about a bunch of different other countries um, and trying to, you know, invite Greta to be the spokesperson of how great and ethical and green uh, Alberta's tar sands and energy industry is compared to other places and then lists every place that the minister can think of. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'm, that's what I'm expecting to hear a lot of people just saying like, oh, like, what about Venezuela? What about Saudi Arabia? What about Iran? Oh, I mean, the arguments used by, you know, the UCP and Jason Kenney are, are arguments that are ultimately extremely thin and flimsy, right? Like, like our media here and our, our, our media and political class here is just like, has just kind of shrugged their shoulders or is just happy to accept it. But like, ultimately the idea of say like per barrel emissions going down is absolutely fucking meaningless if overall emissions are up. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, oh. it's not just Russia. It's not just Venezuela. We have to do our part too. We can't be slacking. Yeah, and the whole collective action problem too, right? Like, like the idea that we shouldn't act on climate because no one else is doing the exact same thing that we are doing. It's like, well, I'm just going to roll my window down when I'm driving, and I'm going to throw a bunch of garbage out the window. And it's not my problem because if everyone, if, if I just stop throwing garbage out the window, I'm only removing a tiny amount of worldwide global garbage, roadside garbage, right? It's but see, the thing is when everybody starts doing it, then it becomes a problem. Yeah. I mean, like one of the funniest things to me with, with all the messaging that we've been seeing from opponents of, of environmentalists in Alberta, uh, at least the official uh, quote unquote ones is that they're just flagging everything that they're going to talk about. Like they're, they're putting out all their talking points and they have no idea the approach that Greta is going to bring into it. So she's coming in expecting exactly what their responses are going to be. She's going to deal with them all very efficiently or, you know, the people that are going to be talking who have been doing the work are going to talk about those things very efficiently and very well. And they're going to be completely blindsided by it because of the fact that we already know what their responses to what she's saying are going to be. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Yeah, like Greta is not the Albert NDP, right? There's a very different type of actor here. Greta coming here is also a bit of a crucible for this thing that Jason Kenney has spent so much time talking about and, and so much time, you know, pitching to Albertans as a as a huge, you know, thing in the war against, you know, foreign funded radicals, and that's the war room. Mm -hmm. You know, the just this week, uh, just sorry, just last week, a new managing director of the war room was appointed. And um, I don't know how familiar the people in the room are with Tom Olson. Yeah. Um, but, uh, actually I'm kind of pleased that he got appointed to be the managing director of the war room. He's an absolute failure at everything he's ever done. Which is not something that you hear often. You don't normally, uh, expect 
praise for someone's failures but i mean yeah, here I, we are i mean he's just one of those extremely kind of mediocre middle-aged white men who's who just fa- who's failed out upwards yeah exactly right and and before we get into tom olson and what he's all about let me play a little bit of the musical country stylings of tom olson and the wreckage it's not like nothing i've ever seen it's a mess and the devil's talking through you Guess I should have seen you coming Should have run Far away When the devil demands attention You gotta pay Tom Olson and the wreckage, everyone. So, okay, so Tom Olson is a pretty hilarious figure in kind of Alberta political and media circles. So he was a scab in the 1999 Herald strike that broke the union. Uh, He was a conservative political columnist for both the Herald and the Journal, where he wrote favorably about Ed Stelmack before being hired to be Ed Stelmack's spokesperson. While he was spokesperson, he launched a proto-war room uh, like 10, 11 years ago called For the Record, where it was explicitly set up to... Uh, you know, go after journalists and correct them vociferously when they were making errors about the, the oil sands. And eventually he ended up getting fired from that position um, because he wasn't any good at it. And he failed upwards, uh, as yeah. you said, into being the manager of PR for the Alberta delegation at the Vancouver Olympics in 2010. Eventually he ended up in the uh, the public affairs lobbyist world where he ended up being a lobbyist for, you know, just the real cream of the crop when it comes to clients, groups like groups that represented landlords and payday lenders. And the, the kicker, like the, the real cherry on the top is that he was a UCP candidate in 2019. Uh, one of only three UCP candidates in Calgary to actually lose. Yeah, in the Calgary stronghold. <laughs> and this war room, it's got $30 million. It's got a lot of hype behind it. But really what I'm interested in, Juan, is I've, I've heard, I mean, I gave some money to the, the Climate Justice Edmonton War Room. Well, let's compare and contrast the two. Like, what's going on with the, the Climate Justice Edmonton War Room? We're sitting all on the edge of our seats right now. I mean, like, the uh, there was a meme about this that, that, that went out. Uh, it, was, it was pretty good. Uh, and, like, the, the wise words of the immortal Joe from, from uh, Fury Road, the UCP War Room is is basically just like 21st century McCarthyism at this point. Like it's getting to that point, but it is also just like, you know, it is getting, what is it? $30 million, uh, you know, from, from the government to probably fail, most likely fail. Um, it is not foipable. So we have no idea how that money is, how that money is being used. There is zero transparency on behalf of that. It is essentially a public agency. So it, it gets, the same benefits that other public agencies within the government get with without the added benefit of like being favorable so we have no idea what's happening uh in contrast to the cje war room which i will admit i'm not i'm not as big a part of uh with regards to the funding there but you know like we are 100 percent people funded um i sometimes i wish i was a for uh, foreign funded radical uh <laughs> because i could definitely use the money but you know, it's it's 100% people funded, people here in, in Alberta, pure transparency on what that looks like. Sometimes we have potlucks, which are really nice. Um, are you saying the Rockefellers aren't cutting you like $100,000 checks? Yeah, no, not yet. Uh, and probably never, unfortunately. But, you know, it would be nice. It would be nice uh, to, you know, to get $30 million for something that we know we're going to win. Uh, but, you know, it's a completely different type of, of war room. 
<laughs> and, so, and a lot of the times we have dogs. It's really nice. Mm. Pretty transparent on that, too. Big They're fan of dogs adorable. in the office. Yeah. I've seen a couple of them. Nice. And, and Alyssa, what are you thinking? What are your thoughts on, on both Tom Olson in the war room and the war room itself, especially as, a, as, as Greta Thunberg comes to town? Like, I think there's a real opportunity for them to really step in it. See, with the war room, I kind of feel like, as Juan said, it's not transparent whatsoever, and that's kind of scary in this day and age. And see, the thing about that, the fact that they have to obscure it, and they also renamed it to the Canadian Energy Centre, you know? I feel the fact that they had to rename it to make it more, uh, how to say, uh, appealing, less threatening, I guess, um, I think that should speak volumes about the kind of work that they're doing behind closed doors. We've got to call it the war room, by the way. Like yeah. Jason Kenny called it the war room for like six months. Like it doesn't yeah. get to be called like, the Canadian They call Energy it the Center. Canadian Energy Center now, but it it was and will always be the war room to me. Greta Cumming kind of blew uh, blew up the original script we had because I did I did want to get into the like the reasons and the motivations behind why someone like you and someone someone like why Juan and why someone like Alyssa would would start doing climate activism as, as a youth. And so one, I, I got to know, like what got you involved in climate activism? Was there a moment that you realized that this was the thing that you had to start spending time on? Or was it, was it a gradual realization? Like, how did you come to it? A lot of things point to me doing this work now over, over the last few years, just like my, like how I am informed as, as a first generation immigrant, how I am informed as you know, someone who's seen what the oil industry has done to, to migrant labor and immigrant labor within my family, you know, ra racialized labor. And that's something that I talk a lot about um, on a more public facing angle. But over the last year, and, and it's a year now at this point, um, the first, the two, two big things. So the first thing was the release of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the one that basically told us we have uh, about 12 years to, to make a change until, you know, we go to a point of, of no return really put me in a very existential mood uh, where I questioned a lot of big things that I was doing in my life, whether it be um, my aspirations to, to have a family, which I've, I've, I've thought about a lot deeper. It's not, it's not unethical to have children in the age of climate change. It's unethical to have climate change in the age of children. It definitely made me rethink a lot of, of my individual choices, which, you know, are granted or aren't what's going to make the system change, but I think can be important if that's the conversation that you want to have with yourself. But the second big thing, um, as someone who is from Colombia, who's, who, you know, Colombia being one of the countries in the world that's at very high risk of the impacts of climate change, not just because of the fact that it's a coastal country, not just because of the fact that it's a mountainous country, but also because of the fact that it's a country that's currently undergoing a transition to peace from an era of, of, of civil war, basically, that peace is put at risk by the fact that climate change around the world is a driver of conflict. And, and it has a ton of oil and gas development, too. Oh, 100%, right? And and a lot of it is, is Canadian uh, multinationals uh, within Colombia as well. So that's that's a pretty big thing there. So there's a Canadian investment in making sure that that peace isn't lasting, in my opinion. Uh, but, you know, what the second thing that really activated me was in February, I was visiting uh, Colombia with my family, um, and... I my my family has a has a has a coffee farm. My uncle has a has a coffee farm, and coffee is usually planted in the mountains, pre-mountainous areas. And when I was a when I was a child, I would go out to these areas, and they would be pretty cold. You know, it's, it's in the mountains, pretty rainy, not a lot of sun. Um, and I'm not someone who sunburns very easily, but I was there for possibly two hours, and I sunburned 
like nothing. And I had a conversation with my uncle who does the majority of the work there, asking him like, you know, like how have you seen climate change impact impact the way in which you in which you grow? And he's been working there for for decades since before I was born. Uh, and his response was yes. Uh, he, you know, the the heat is making it so that pests around coffee are more common now to the point where a lot more of his crops are being destroyed uh, and where the pests don't do the work the sun is burning a lot of the coffee so you know where i'm from those impacts are being seen already and coming back here and seeing that people just didn't really care just you know made me think a lot about what role i was playing not just on an individual level but also just like systematically colombia isn't one of the world one of the countries in the world that's putting out the largest amount of emissions but it's going to be one of the countries in the world that's going to see what that looks like uh, up, up front and very soon right so those two things really activated me to like become way more involved than i had been in the past mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Alyssa, what what was your inciting incident like what radicalized you well, I think it kind of really started a little bit before the May 3rd strike. Uh, I think that was kind of like my call to action. See, I had always grown up with like, you know, like climate change being taught in schools, not really in depth or like what you can do about it beyond like individual actions like, oh, yeah, reuse, 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 reduce, recycle, that sort of stuff, which always seemed like all right. But also what about the big corporations that are like wreaking havoc all across the world? What about like the oil sands up in northern Alberta, right? And they never really address that sort of question. So for me, I never really felt like spurred to action, I guess. Like you would see the Lorax as a kid and you'd be like, okay, all right, I see the message. Now what? But I think like around May 3rd, it kind of just like hit me like I, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it was just kind of like a call to action where it was like I had seen like some people like prepping and making their own signs for the May 3rd strike. I had seen the post by like Edmonton Youth for Climate and I was like, wow, there's like people in the oil capital of Alberta, like all these people that are interested in attending and going out on like a student strike, like kids that are still in school, people my age, people like me, you know, and I kind of saw myself in that and I'm like, well, Protests are normally something that seems so far off and so far away and that nothing ever really happens here. But I think for me, it was kind of like, yeah, it does happen here. Yeah, I do have a part to play in this. Yeah, I can join with everyone else and we can combine like our collective efforts instead of just like using our individual actions, which are also incredibly important. But I don't think it really realizes the extent of the problem. Like, sure, everyone can like not litter on the ground. Everyone can like, you know, turn the lights off when they're not using them. Basic, simple actions like that. Everyone can go pick up litter. Everyone can go do that. But see, the thing is, a lot of it has to be like a systemic overhaul of the current system that we have, Uh, especially with the UCP in power. But even under the NDP, I feel like, well, the government is not doing enough. So if the adults can't act like adults, who's left and then you basically get to a point where you see youth activists like Greta Thunberg you see like groups like Edmonton Youth for Climate rise up to fill that place and I feel like that's very empowering for like a lot of people and especially empowering for me that time and this May 3rd action was a student strike uh, on May 3rd and 700 people were in the streets and I don't think media touched it at all like I don't even think media noticed that there was 700 
youth students like in it was the touched streets. on a little bit but not really that much like if you were going about day to day no nobody would be like hey did you go to the may 3rd strike like whoa it was it was more like low-key i guess you would say and then media is like, oh, now there's 4,000 people in the streets for the climate strike that was in September. It's like, how did this happen? And then they just haven't been paying attention, I think is the, the really easy conclusion to make, right? And I think the climate strike is an interesting kind of like moment to think about, right? This is the most people I've ever seen in the streets in Edmonton in the 10 years I've ever been here. There was what, like 400,000 people on the streets in Montreal, 100,000 mm -hmm. people on the streets in Vancouver. I mean, this is something that I don't think our political and, and media class has really reckoned with the fact that, that there's a legitimate moment happening when it comes to the climate movement, the social movement around climate activism, mm -hmm. and that they're able to get these amount of people in the streets. And like the 4,000 people that came to Edmonton, that was like one of the smallest ones like around the world. Like you said, like Montreal had like over 400,000 people. So when you compare that to 4,000, it doesn't seem like much, but considering that it's like right at the heart of like Alberta, I feel like that's very like a momentous occasion that we should all be celebrating. Definitely. And I think getting 4,000 people in the streets, I think what I'm curious about is like, what were the little, what were the roles that you two played in that effort? Like I know there must've been dozens and dozens of people involved in pulling that event off, but I know you were involved even in your own little ways. Like, what were you up to, Juan? So I did a lot of work uh, as part of Climate Justice Edmonton on the U Alberta campus, University of Alberta. Um, so that looked a lot like reaching out to people, reaching out to profs, putting a lot of pressure on the students' union, which unfortunately we didn't really get the, the results that we wanted, but we got a, a degree of results. Uh, and I think that we started getting a lot of pressure on the students' union that will have pretty good impacts going forward with regards to how the students' union deals with these issues going forward in a, in a pretty positive way. Um, but, you know, we're all, we're all cogs in, in, in the community-based machine that we're building here. Um, so on campus, I, I helped organize a lot of the logistic aspects of what that looked like. Um, going over to the legislature, again, helped a little bit on the logistical aspects there. I, I spoke as well, uh, but overall, just one of the many people doing a lot of the work to get students excited, get students talking, and it was it was impossible to ignore uh, that that energy on campus. Even if even if things weren't being talked about, you could feel that energy, you know, being being put up among students everywhere, and. It, it was amazing because we, I wanted to, sh to, to, you know, to shoot a pretty conservative idea of, of how many people I thought would show up, especially, especially on campus. But we had like 700 people on campus alone, right? Which, you know, for a campus of, of, of 30,000 students, 30,000 undergrads and 10,000 postgrads is, is not phenomenal. But when you consider the fact that that's the exact same amount of people that showed up to the May 3rd strike, yeah. it's a pretty big number. Um, and there was a point walking uh, from campus to the legislature where I was one of the marshals, uh, getting people down the right paths and making sure that everyone was safe. I couldn't see the beginning of it and I couldn't see the end of it. And it was overwhelming in all the best ways possible. And honestly, I, I'm excited to see more of it because this isn't going to be the last that, that we see with something like this. There's, you know, one of the biggest and it, it shouldn't be surprising to me, but it one always of the, is. It always is. Yeah. One of the things that that I that I keep realizing every time is that we keep being afraid that we'll have a low turnout 
And those expectations are shattered every single time. And it's because students really care about this and students really want to show up for this and students are showing up for this. And it's just, it's been, you know, it's been really amazing to be part of these conversations, to be part of this work, especially when you see just how much people care and how much people are, are, are willing to, you know, to, to move, to make a change on, on what these things, on what these things are and, and what we want to see happen. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Alyssa? What were you up to during the strike? Uh, see, I think I played like a pretty small part. Uh, I like what Juan said about like uh, being like a small cog within the community-based machine. Um, I feel like I contributed most in just mostly like group effort stuff. Like uh, I mentioned, Youth for Climate mostly focuses on like high school students and sometimes junior high students. Actually, we have a member that's from junior high, which is actually exciting to see uh, people younger and younger getting involved. Um, but mostly what we were doing was reaching out to schools and like trying to organize like um, the strike from Churchill to the legislature, like the general march. Um, and also during the, like the whole thing was like the week of action. We were doing the die-in on the 20th and then what culminated in like the 4,000 people showing up on the 27th was uh, the general strike. Uh, during the week I was, trying to like set up like an art mural project with like some other people but that didn't quite work out um i'm not as involved with that right now so hopefully it'll be on the grounds sometime soon but it didn't really work out for then um i also helped with the land acknowledgement uh with another member and we uh brought that up and made the speech together and it was a pretty um nice back and forth effort between us i think Awesome. And, and you, you two have talked about these two organizations, right? Climate Justice Edmonton and Edmonton Youth for Climate. But like, what do these organizations do? How many people are involved? Like are the regular meetings, if people are, are interested in them, how can they how can they get involved? So on the Climate Justice Edmonton part, I, I, I mean, like I've only been involved for so little. I thought I was checking actually a few days ago to see like how long have I have I been involved? How long have I been going to meetings? Um, I've been going to meetings since April, since like the end of April, uh, but Climate Justice Edmonton as a group has existed for over the past two years, you know, it grew from, from a group that had around six people to one where now we're getting, and, and 4,000 people is a conservative estimate. There are estimates that say there was 5,000 people possibly at, at, at the highest points, um, you know, getting that many people moving out, you know, um, going from, from actions like the banner drop on the high level that said no kinder morgan that was like one of the first actions to the people on the paths which was again another another action an art an art action against kinder morgan um up to now that's how long i've been involved so really not that long but we do meet pretty regularly um on a weekly or bi-weekly basis just as a general group we have a few campaigns that that we're really excited to roll out that that aren't public yet but very excited to see them be public and uh, really, the best way to get involved, uh, I'll, I'll plug the social media now, and I can plug it at the end too, is really to reach out on on the social media uh, like places like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, people are always keeping their eyes on those, uh, making sure that they're like seeing all the messages that are being sent out. So I'll just share those now, and I can share them again at the end. Mm-hmm. The Facebook is just Climate Justice Edmonton. The Instagram is uh, Climate Justice Edmonton again, one big one, and the Twitter is CJ Edmonton. Really great messaging those places you usually get people responding to those messages basically right away and giving you the information uh in the right in the right in the right pathway the right position in the right place uh, to get started with that work cool 
so I had heard of, of Climate Justice Edmonton, but Alyssa, when I was reaching out to people for this episode, I hadn't heard of Edmonton Youth for Climate. So like, what's what's the story there? Uh, basically, it kind of started out like uh, tied to CGE more so uh, from what I've been hearing. I wasn't there in the beginning. I pretty much just joined like uh, the first open meeting after the May 3rd strike. Uh, but see, the story there is kind of that we're, we were tied to like CGE, but we're trying to like break out and be like our more like independent group that's, uh, for the most part, like I mentioned, we're more focused on like youth and youth, youth activism. So we're reaching out to like schools right now and we're hoping to be working more with like environmental clubs and stuff like that in the future. Um, and we also meet on like a weekly basis. We usually meet like every Thursday. Uh, sometimes the location changes, but uh, if you could like reach out to um, the social media accounts, like Juan said, I can just plug them now. Um, that would be Edmonton Youth for Climate on Facebook, um, at Yug underscore strike on Twitter, and the Instagram is at student at studentstrike uh, dot Yug. Um, if you reach out to there, like a member will like reach out to you and tell you when like the next open meeting is. We usually have open meetings pretty frequently and honestly, uh, they're pretty casual. <laughs> like we, we like joking around and stuff like that, but we stay pretty on, on topic when we need to be. Cool. Okay, so we are in the middle of a federal election, um, though it, it is easy to forget that in Alberta. Um. I don't know about that. <laughs> I've been uh, targeted for way too many political ads, even though I can't vote. So uh, oh, really? I'm not sure who's sending me those. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's too bad. You'll get to vote soon, I guess, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, next election, next election. But but it is, uh, do you feel that the, the issue of climate change has been pushed onto the agenda of this election at all? I, I feel like it has. I feel like um, with the leaders' debates, it has been brought up and like people have been addressing like their climate platforms um much more readily i think but i feel like a lot of the platforms that have been out aren't the best i guess i would say i feel like they're not taking it taking it as seriously as it needs to be i don't think people are listening to like especially like the ip uh cc report that we have about 11 years uh to basically turn things around and like fix this i don't think people have been taking the weight of what that means very again seriously if they were it would be a lot more okay we need to get this 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 that you know you'd be ordered you would be more organized you would be coming up with solutions and i haven't really been seeing that on like the federal stage during this election that much it hasn't been really as forthcoming as i would have liked yeah, my, my response to this comes with the caveat that I very much exist in a very large bubble where a lot of my interactions, almost all of my interactions now, are very directly based around climate change and, and climate change activism uh, around the country. But I would say that, you know, compared to, to the last election, the conversations around climate change have been completely radical in every single way, uh, to the point where the, the idea of a Green New Deal or the idea of of a transformational change as opposed to a more incremental change is one that's being, at least in my eyes, had more in, in the public in the public sphere around what that looks like. And I think that there are more conversations than there would have been had this work not been done. Uh, but I think there there is so much to go, right? I think that conversations around the Green New Deal are happening and there are questions that have been asked 
unfortunately not like a national uh, debate on climate change, which was one of the many things that Climate Justice Edmonton worked on uh, as mm -hmm. part of, for example, the Our Time uh, campaign, Our Time being kind of uh, a national uh, group that does climate change uh, electoral uh, activism, but also part of the campaign of Climate Justice Edmonton, kind of moving for a for a leaders debate on on climate. Uh, so I think there's way more than than you what know we was. would than we would have expected, absolutely. But unfortunately, not as much as we would have wanted to see. Of yeah. course, but I mean, I mean, politics is always a trailing, always trails behind culture, oh, right? I and I and I think the culture is, and when you pull people. Yes, the, the, the support for action on climate is extremely high. But when you actually look at the results of what of what politicians get up to when it comes to climate action, the results are extremely tepid. And it comes down to challenging power, right? And mm -hmm. and that's what I think is fundamentally different about this moment in, in climate activism world than perhaps past moments, is that there is an anal a systemic analysis and a critique of power that acknowledges that you will have to fight for it. That, that this will not be easy, that the, the economic interests that profit from turning our planet into a hellscape will not go quietly. As much as we want it to, you can't just vote it out. You're right, yes. So, like, the, the question of social movements versus electoral politics is also kind of at the core of the work that you're doing, right? Like, like you have to be involved in electoral politics as a social movement, but you can't have your entire identity, all your work, everything that you're doing wrapped up in it, because ultimately it's never going to do or go as far as you want, right? hundred percent. And I mean, like a lot, of, and this is something that, that was very transformational, the way in which I thought about electoral politics. Someone within Climate Justice Edmonton a few weeks ago brought up the quote that sometimes we don't vote to get all the wins that we want. We just vote to make our enemies easier to fight. Uh, and the fights that we fight uh, under a uh, liberal minority with NDP backing are substantially different than the fights that we fight were it to be a conservative government. And I think that the, the fights on the former are winnable fights, whereas the fights on the latter are ones that are a little bit more existential in nature. And I think that, you know, hand in hand, that's how we get a lot of the movement that we want. And it is also through that activism that we move the idea of what is unacceptable and like generally understood conversation within the public sphere, right? Like the, the Green New Deal conversation wouldn't be happening in the like electoral sphere were it not for the thousands of activists that have been pushing for conversation in the Green New Deal, not just through the Sunrise Movement in the States, but also through activists all throughout so-called Canada here. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I feel like voting is more a means of like harm reduction than actually like changing the systems of power that are in place. Um, but I would encourage like people uh, definitely to like reach out to like grass grassroots like uh, community organizing and like start with like action there because I think that's where you're going to get like the most results and the most satisfying results. Seeing like maybe your vote, uh, like if you're a more apathetic voter who's like, yeah, I care about the climate, but I don't feel like my vote is going to count. I don't feel that in my district, whichever party has like the best climate platform is going to win here. I feel it's going to be, you know, something that's going to be against climate that doesn't even believe climate, like the climate crisis is a real threat to humanity. So when you look at that, it's like, well, it's very discouraging. So I feel like there can be a lot of climate grief associated with that. So I feel like direct, direct action would be 
one of the more meaningful ways to like get involved beyond just voting at the ballot box on like what was it October 21st I believe it October was October 21st yeah. coming right up I mean I, I am I think a more radical I think more a more radical politics is more possible now than at any other time that I've been alive right like like the, the neoliberal consensus about how our society is currently ordered is, is kind of cracking at the seams and I see a lot of you know anti-capitalists I see a lot of like the anti-colonization decolonization signs at, at the protests that I go to and it is this is the acknowledgement that like climate change is not some policy issue about which we can disagree it's it's an existential threat to our species that has clear interests on one side <laughs> and then us on the other and 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 that is heartening right because i've i've worked for you know on non ngos and i've done work that is like oh if we can just do x or y or z this climate change solution this climate change solution we can fiddle out around the edges of the system we have and we can fix it i think we've all acknowledged that that is just not possible anymore and that a more radical politics is needed to 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 have that and 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 electoral people involved in electoral politics need to realize that it's the work done by these social movements that gives them the space to actually do stuff that is actually good yeah <laughs> and 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 realizing that these people are not your enemy i think is key um so for all the alberta ndp and, and ndp folks out there who listen to this podcast just know that these people aren't your enemy <laughs> um Finally, well, maybe not finally. I think we have a couple more things to talk about. But the, the question came up recently. You know, we had an action here in Edmonton, I think last, not this Monday, but Pat, last Monday. Yeah, on the Walterdale Bridge with XR. Yeah, with Extinction Rebellion, I think nine people chaining themselves together during rush hour over the course of a morning on the Walterdale Bridge. I, I know neither of you were involved with that, organizing it or being a part of it, but it did kind of get kind of, centrist liberal tongues wagging and i think I, I am curious about your thoughts on the action and and really the place of direct action in you know the 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 tactics that are used by the, the climate movement so i think that i've actually spent a lot of time thinking about this because i think you know an action like that is so disruptive in ways that people don't want to be disrupted right like there's a very big difference between nine people blocking themselves uh, at the entrance of a bridge at rush hour in the morning versus 5,000 people doing basically the same by taking up some space on, on a street uh, at, at noon uh, on a Friday. And I think that when we talk about the role of disruption and the role of disruption as something that's inconvenient, I think it plays a very, very, very important role, particularly in the time where we are now, where people are going to be mad because they say, well, if you want to get people on your side, then do it in a way that's convenient to them. I think that, unfortunately, this in part does create some enemies, but I think it is also very clear in stating that there is a line between whether you're on our side or not. And I think that when people get angry about actions like this, yes, they're going to be angry. Yes, they're going to react. But I think part of it also means then seeing who they're being aligned with, right? I think that it, it demands seeing that the ways in which they react are also very closely tied to the ways in which the government might react. And then they see those reactions of the government tied to specific actions on either, for example, having a thing like an unfoipable like <laughs> machine to basically pursue climate activists, which will always endanger indigenous activists who do frontline work first. Uh, but I think that for a lot of people who see those, those reactions from the government and, and the ensuing actions from the government, 
the conversation that they have to have with themselves is then it's well i'm about yeah, priorities. yeah exactly like i'm angry about this but this is meant to a degree to ask me to ask myself which side am i on right and i think that people have to make the choice of whether they're on you know the the side that that's in, that's doing you know environmental harms or the side that's doing an hour plus of like and essentially like a, a rush hour delay right which i think then leads to deeper conversations on what it looks like to really prioritize your work that much that you think that like being inconvenienced for an hour is more important than the fact that you're going to be gravely inconvenienced about by climate change if we do nothing about it yeah, um, and not to get all robert's rules here but it, it calls the question ex right? exactly right that there's a bigger piece that i was like thinking a little bit more about when it comes to you know um different activist groups around a city or around around a region uh and disagreeing with tactics like i there are tactics that that extension rebellion does that i don't completely agree with i think we have very different politics in a lot of ways but i think that there's an expectation of specific activist groups to disavow other activist groups and, and in a way that's done very deliberately and the example that i think of uh was last year um in Ontario, where some anarchist activists uh, had, I don't know if you remember this, put out uh, a guillotine at Queen's, Queen Perry's Mark, I don't remember what it's called, Queen Mary Park. Park, yeah, uh, where, where their legislature is. And there was so much demand of other leftist organizations to completely disavow that action, to completely say, we're, we're not with them. Uh, they're just like the awkward like cousin or whatever. But I think that there's a specific expectation uh, of activist groups to always disavow and kind of like perform a type of um, incongruity between different act like groups that do specific actions. And I think that that benefits a lot of the people that we're working against, right? This idea that like we're not like we we're, we're on the same side, but we're not them, right? Um, and I think when when we talk about the current zeitgeist that we're in of of the the role that that activism plays in our daily lives, I think it's really important to think, yeah, we might disagree with a lot of different tactics that a lot of different peoples do, but at what point is it valuable to to disavow those tactics, to disavow those groups, if the greater you it's know, like the shared vision. Yeah, exactly. Right? Do, we agree the on the Do we agree on the end goal? Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> so, so I mean, it's something that I was thinking a lot about because at that time, a lot of people really disavowed that action. But looking back on it, it's important to you know to have actions that we see as a little bit extreme or that you know we might not agree with the tactics because we can't afford to to act completely like there's a vision. Not to say that we shouldn't call out behaviors that we think are harmful. Um, because that's a completely different conversation. But I think that, you know, it's, it's important. It's more about constructive criticism uh, and, yeah. like, working together with other groups so that we're not tearing each other down, pitting ourselves against each other, because that's what the people in power kind of want us to mm -hmm. do. We're supposed to be working together because, in the end, we have the same goal. How we get there might be different, and we might not agree on those tactics, but that's pretty much, like, up for, like, individuals and like groups to decide for themselves but i think as long as we have like kind of that shared vision like that shared goal of like a green new deal of a just transition to like a green livable future i feel like we can get along fine it's kind of like the argument between like re reformation and like radical action it's like okay do we want to like incrementally like eventually get there do we want to increase and like do a bunch of actions to like force the government's hand to like force the the 
the system of power or do we want to do like more covert actions do we want to like rely on electoral politics and i think that's really um i think it's more of like a philosophical debate that we can have among ourselves but i think in the end um everybody gets to like choose that for themselves and i think we shouldn't really be wasting time you know just having endless discussions about things it's good to talk about and it's good to have like uh like to call out people on like problematic behavior sure but i think that we need to like mostly be focusing on these actions we can have like responses to that but i don't think that should take up like the main part of the conversation i think it should be like okay is this effective is this not do we want to do this okay no and then go like our ways from there and collaborate when we can and collaborate in the ways that make sense for us and our groups yep. yeah like i think it's important to acknowledge that any social movement, any successful social movement requires a diversity of tactics all, all the way from the most milquetoast electoral politics bullshit to, um, you know, chaining yourself together or, or being super disruptive to the, the, the way the system is working or the econo- economic system is working. And there's just never been any successful social movement ever that did not disrupt society in some way. Like f- go back, you know, suffragettes, uh, unions, uh, Indian independence, black civil rights, I don't know more, ACT UP and AIDS activism. Like, like these things could not have been as successful if they were if they did not actively disrupt society. And so it's also important that to know, to realize that there are honest disagreements within a movement and that it's important to have, to, like those are the, the way, hashing out those disagreements is important, but it's also important to not just use your platform to just shit on people yeah. who are doing stuff yep. that you don't necessarily agree with, right? Okay, I mean that's a that's a it's a that's a very important question, and I'm super glad that we were able to talk about it. Finally, I kind of want to end on a bit of an upbeat note. Okay, so this is this is a question that kind of bedevils all social movements too, right? Is this intergenerational question? If how do you know the people who have you know the energy and the time and the um, <laughs> the the ability to actually go out and do a lot of this work? how do the people who are older than them support them, right? I think it's a real easy trope for liberals and centrists to just like look at Greta Thunberg and the climate march, the climate strike and the climate march is happening and be like, oh, well, the kids got this and not actually do anything to support the work that's being done. And and I think it's um, important to even just place ourselves on the generational scale, right? Like I'm, I'm 36 years old. I'm technically a millennial. I'm an older millennial. Like I have a young child. I think Juan, you're you're probably like a young millennial. Yep. Yeah, university yep. student, that kind of thing. University student, and you grew up in like Medicine Hat too, which kind of like culturally. Yeah, I mean, like it, it's interesting because part of my experience is like I I have, I have had very different experiences growing up as like a first generation immigrant who didn't have the same access to to media as people my age did. So like a lot of the things that that came to me. Um, came to me much later than to other people my age, but specifically when it comes to, you know, to media and, and just to, to, like, technology. to what that looks like, like. I think that would be definitely different than to me, who is, like, white and has that kind of sort of privilege. Um, and, like, and I'm you're seven- younger, too. Yeah, you're I'm 17 right now. Uh, I can't vote in this election, guys. Uh, <laughs> so it's that kind of thing. So, like, I'd be more of a Zoomer, but there's, like, a little bit of overlap. But I think like oh, generations are fake. But yeah, it, but generations are fake. But sometimes the distinctions are important, like within like cultural attitudes, I guess you could say. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the question is, is like, how do I help you? Like even I'm, I'm 36 years old. I don't have a ton of access. I don't have a ton of power or money at my disposal, but I have more than you two do. And it's a question of how do you build solidarity between those groups? Um, and how do we 
how do we help you not even just not even just access to money or connections or power or whatever but it's even just like the experience that we have like organizing itself is an, an, an extremely like cringy activity that you are just going to fuck up all the time at right oh, yeah. like oh yeah <laughs> um i've i've been doing it for however many years longer than you have been doing and i would i would not wish anyone to do the stupid cringy shit that i did when i was 10 years younger and and so i mean i don't have an answer here but i am curious as to how do we build that cross-generational solidarity and and kind of knowledge transmission within the activist community um see i kind of I kind of feel different about people who have been like kind of doing the work like before I was even born versus like as you said like the centrists and the liberals out there uh the people who are like especially like the useless centrists as I as I've heard someone say once um I think that's an interesting phrase because like a lot of people are like even now somehow still find themselves to be on the fence which I find interesting in this uh day of information and acts ready access to like the internet and to like different points of view uh but see the thing is i think with that a lot of people as you said like they don't realize that you know like no the kids don't got this the kids are doing this because you didn't get this it's like kind of like a generational torch that is passed down but instead of just like passing it off cleanly you're kind of like accidentally lighting some bits of them on fire and you're like <laughs> oh well sorry your clothes on fire guess that's your problem now and it's like well i didn't ask for this but i guess i'll put the fire out since it seems to be spreading to you and everyone else too uh like the fire being like the climate crisis obviously uh that was like a bad metaphor but <laughs> with that it's kind of like yeah, there are people who do have like more ready access to resources who to resources to, who do have more privilege than like youth and especially like uh youth uh like people of color or like indigenous folks who are on the front lines and I think that's like um good to address in the fact that a lot of like as I said a lot of this comes down to we need to have that intergenerational support. It can't just be the youth who are doing this because we're the ones like take taking time of school a lot of people criticize us for like oh like why aren't you in school well it's because i would rather like devote my time to this and then focus on my homework later that sort of thing um i'm not sure to how how to like phrase it but basically it's like we can't vote we can't even do like that much but we want to like affect change in the ways that we are able to. And I think a lot of people at the very least should like come out and join us, come out and like mm -hmm. be in support of us. So when like Greta comes to Alberta, you don't just shit on her because like, what does a 16 year old know? You listen to her, you listen to the people who have been doing this work in Alberta who are not foreign funded from Alberta, you listen to them, you see, hear what they're saying and you go and take action with them. You hold hands and you like support and you do the whole kumbaya thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I really love this question because I think it, it can go in so many different directions. Um, I, 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 didn't get, I didn't get into climate justice work to personally get something out of it. I think that what I want out of climate justice work is a livable world. And I think that the reason for, but you know, a, a key reason for why I got involved with Climate Justice Edmonton is that a lot of the work that Climate Justice Edmonton does is that it 
it just recognizes at its core that a lot of the work that is to be done with climate justice needs to be, for example, migrant justice, needs to be racial justice, it needs to be gender justice, labor justice. Uh, but I think most vital for the place where we are is indigenous justice. And I think when we look back at the work that informs this work, uh, like this work isn't possible without the previous work and the previous generations of anti-colonial resistance from indigenous peoples, right? Given it's that- It's like the building blocks where you can, if you don't have like a solid foundation, you're not gonna be able to build your house. You need like that background support. You need that solid foundation. You need the work of others to be able to continue the, the work that we're like doing today. And it needs to like address the different facets that like come under like the whole umbrella of like what the cl climate crisis involves. And it really brings up the question, what does climate justice look like? Yep, exactly. And so like when, you know, any any resist as, as for as long as there's been uh, resistance to colonial violence, that same resistance has also been resistance to environmental degradation. Right. So I can't do this work without recognizing that I have come to this place from the patience of indigenous peoples who have shown me what it looks like to think about like uh, the ways in which we're repairing relations and forming new relations and what that looks like, right? I work not just to ensure that there's a world that we can live in, but also to make sure that no one gets left behind in the work and what that looks like. So then what it looks like to me to get intergenerational resource sharing is really just to get people who have resources and who have wealth to think about, first of all, in what ways has that wealth been amassed in a settler state, so always tied to a certain degree of environmental violence, uh, and in what ways does that then inform the responsibilities that that wealth means to indigenous people. So what I mean by that is that intergenerational wealth isn't just gained just like independently of, of that colonial violence, it also means that one of the ways in which that needs to be repaired is by giving not only resources to indigenous peoples who are working on the front lines, but also looks like giving the land back to indigenous peoples. To me, climate justice can't start to happen when we actually start having genuine conversations around what, what it looks like to take care of the land, and when we start recognizing that like the people that have been care taking care of this land for as long as, as there's been an environmental issue have been indigenous peoples. So when we talk about intergenerational wealth, that often also looks like like the, the inheritance of land as one of the main ways in which wealth is amassed. So for people out there who, you know, have a, a, a family plot and who aren't sure what they're going to do with it, but they know that they're going to inherit it, my request to you is consider giving it back to indigenous peoples, right? That's um, where it came from, yeah, originally. Exactly, right? So, like, you know, the the conversation of land back obviously is not one that I'm an expert on since I'm not an indigenous person. Uh, but, you know, if, if we are to recognize that the history of environmental degradation on this land is tied to the history of colonialization, then those, like, we, can all, we can't separate those, those fights, right? And the part of the conversation then between generations isn't just how are you giving intergenerational wealth to where it needs to go, it's also like where is that amassed and, and where it's amassed is, is on the land and that land needs to go back for those fights to actually start to happen. Mm-hmm. I think it's a fantastic place to end it, Juan. Thank you so much. And Alyssa, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It has been a fantastic conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It was great. Thank you. Um, 
yeah, this is the end of the show. So again, give your give your plugs for your various organizations. Whoever's first to their to their phone to <laughs> always the youth on their phones. Uh, <laughs> let me find it here. There we go. Okay, so gotta follow Admission Youth for Climate on Facebook um, at Yeg underscore Strike on Twitter. And the Instagram is at Student Strike Yeg. So for Facebook, again, it's Climate Justice Edmondson. Uh, on Instagram, it's Climate Justice Edmondson, all one big username. Uh, on Twitter, it's CJ Edmondson. Uh, if you see me around, say hi. Uh, oh, and, and I'd love for it. people to say hi to me, too. Yeah, Please, yeah. I'm always up for talking. Yeah, and yeah, if yeah. you want to just, like, DM any of these accounts that we just, like, unloaded onto you guys, that would be wonderful. Um, the people who, like, run the accounts are, like, from our groups, and they will get back to you, like, so quick it's amazing awesome. yeah okay well i mean thanks so much again to Alyssa and juan for coming on the pod that's it for this episode of the podcast if you like what progress alberta do- does go out there and smash that like button um also share the podcast text it to your friends post it on facebook post it on whatever social media network you use reviews are actually really helpful so if you're on uh, apple podcasts reviews um not just five stars but an actual written review would actually really help. And if you like this podcast and you want to support what we do, thank you. And you can go to the progressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card and give us a small amount of money every month. $5 goes a long way. We've got 200 other folks who do this and it's really key to us continuing to put out this product. So thank you so much to our existing donors. And if you do want to hear more of this podcast, you do want, you do like it, you want to support it, go to progressreport.ca slash patrons, become a patron. Also, if you have any notes, thoughts, or comments that you think I need to hear, I'm on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Famu Communist for the amazing theme. Thanks so much for listening, and goodbye. Bye. Bye.